Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. The best healthy diet has been the holy grail of modern medicine. Despite hundreds of studies and journals, there seems to be a lot of controversy as to which is the best diet for most of us to follow. Before there was paleo diet or keto diet, there was actually the zone diet. I remember it. Dr. Barry Sears, a PhD biochemist, who for 25 years has been espousing that to stay healthy, a diet with the proper proportion of proteins, fats, and yes, carbohydrates is the key to good health. Dr. Sears published The Zone Diet in 1995. He did have quite a lot of competition back then from some other famous doctors, such as Dean Ornish, who published his book, Reversing Heart Disease which favored a low-fat vegetarian diet. And in contrast to that, there was Dr. Robert Atkins, who published The Atkins Revolution, which much of the public embraced as a high-fat diet, but no carbs. And in between all of that, most physicians were pretty supportive of the Mediterranean diet. And now, finally, what's recently hit the stage is the paleo diet and the keto diet. And it really kind of has us all scratching our heads what should we eat? I, I don't know. People ask me this all the time. My guest today, Dr. Barry Sears, has just released his newest book, The Resolution Zone, where he makes the case that how you can use your diet to resolve inflammation, which as we all know, is such an important thing. And we'll talk about also the blood markers and things that you can do to follow how you do on this diet. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Barry Sears to the podcast. Dean, thank you very much. My pleasure. All right, we're going to start with something very general about diet and weight. Because again, probably back in 1995, when you came out with the zone diet, and as you know, too, most diets that got a lot of popularity, they weren't so much interested back then about inflammation. They were worried more about losing weight. And your book, in fact, obviously the zone book sold over a million copies, I think, back then, as people, the word started to spread that people were losing weight without going hungry on your diet. But I want to ask you now, do you think losing weight is the, one of the most key things in any diet? No. Well, the key thing and where I started, actually, the start of the zone was around the early 1980s when the Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded for understanding how a group of hormones called acosinoids right. basically affect inflammation. So the zone diet was not a diet. It was really a way of controlling the levels of excess inflammation. Now, one of the consequences of that, if you can reduce inflammation, and more importantly, as we'll talk about today, resolve it, then you have the keys to living a longer and better life. So it's not about weight. I mean, I know, look, what I'm just, what my point that I was bringing out is, yeah. you know, most people, when they hear about, oh, the new diet's out, or the keto, or the paleo, I'm going to lose weight. But- Again, what you, you make a really good case in your book, and we're going to get into that, that that's not the most important thing. Not, not by a long shot. I mean, most people, again, right, they, they're so happy about it. They go on the scale, and they see five or 10 pounds that they've lost, but yet 
their biochemical markers could be getting worse. Exactly. Right? Is that correct? Uh, exactly. And that's why we, yeah. you know, we look at the scale weight. We have to be really looking. We should be looking at the blood chemistry. The blood chemistry right. will tell right. you what is the best diet for you. Right. And I think that's why you have such a unique position. You know, one of my other big idols in medicine really was uh, Linus Pauling. And he was essentially a biochemist. He was a chemist, but he worked in a lot of biological, you know, uh, and discovered so many of those pathways and, and everything. But they, you know, really understand because we'll get to this later also too. The body is really a chemistry set, but we got to also, we got to get to later. It's also a microbiology set. So those two things, I think, are probably the two most important things, you know, when people are deciding what foods they're going to put into their body. So let's go on to something that I really wanted to hear your opinion about. And as you, you hear, I mentioned in the opening, I like to just to set the stage, compare some of the diets, you know, and some of them have faded from popularity, but like the Ornish diet, which I followed for several years, and I actually didn't feel so great on it. I'll, I'll, I'll share some of my things, but I went out to Dean Ornish's program. I was in my 30s and I was, he had just come out with his book and I was really interested. I said, wow, I'm in my 30s. Why don't I prevent my heart disease? Like, why should I wait till I'm 60? But it, it had good and bad things, which I ended up realizing. And, I, and a lot of my vegetarian patients are the most difficult patients to take care of. They have health issues. And Atkins, obviously, as we know, I mean, he got everybody all excited about avoiding carbs. And that probably kind of gave rise to the keto diet. So can you set the stage for me a little bit? You, you talk about this as one of the chapters in your book. Let's go one by one, some simple things. Again, just your perspective, let's say, on the Ornish diet. What's low-fat, vegetarian, you know, quickly, good and bad? Well, the good, there's many good things about a vegetarian diet if it's a vegetarian diet. That means you're eating right. lots of vegetables. Okay. Many people interpret a vegetarian diet as eating lots of pizza doesn't work that way. Right. So uh, right. again, it's all about balance. In both cases of both Dean and Robert Atkins, there are two extremes. They're both throwing out the baby with the bathwater. The, the fact is that what I tried to do with the zone diet was say, you need a balance. You need enough protein. Right. I don't care if it's vegetarian or animal protein, right. but it has to be balanced right. by the right amount of carbohydrate. And yes, keep the fat levels low. So both had right. points to make, but in many ways, uh, I felt like a Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Well, wait a second. But Atkins, as you know, he didn't really say that you had to keep the fat low, right? I mean, that was why people loved it. They were eating their hamburgers, big steaks. You know, they were getting a lot of fat, but they were, we'll get to this, they were like sort of blunting the insulin response because it wasn't from the carbs. So they would lose weight, probably, I don't know, with some water weight. It was like almost like a diuretic effect. And really the opposite of Dean Ornish, who was like low fat. And he basically, unfortunately, set the stage for fats are all pretty much bad. Exactly. Right? exactly. And, and people, want, I know, I've been people want simple solutions to very complex questions. Right. So it's not that there's any evil nutrient. You're looking for what is the right balance? And the balance for right. what? Not to lose weight, but to control your hormonal system that basically indicates really the quality of life you're going to have. Okay. What's your feeling about, we'll jump around here a little bit, but let's say, again, something that's really confused me, and I'm, I'm almost glad that you, you say this, like this keto diet, which I've never really been in favor of, but there are just, I have to mention, there are some people, prominent people, really almost like David Perlmutter, who I've met, and he's very big in brain grain and, and the whole thing about, he thinks that ketogenic diets are good for brain health. 
But I, I, what I never understood, and again, as a physician, you know, we used to always worry about when people went to ketosis. Obviously, it was diabetics. But, and again, you make the case that actually ketosis, your brain needs carbs, and it needs about 130 grams, you mentioned, a day of glucose. And then these kind of diets promote going to ketosis. They're big on what we used to consider bad fats like coconut oil. What's your, what's your perspective on that? Well, the fact is, actually, we published uh, some very, very careful studies in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition nearly 15 years ago comparing the zone diet to a keto diet under highly controlled circumstances. The total calories were the same. The total amount of protein was the same. The only difference was the ratio of, pro- of carbohydrate and fat. And what did that show? It showed in every parameter we looked at the zone diet was superior. There was only one area that the, the ketogenic diet was superior. It caused a doubling of inflammation in the blood within six weeks. Not good Not at good. all. Mm. So why are they saying this is good for brain health? I mean, why would Perlmutter, what do they think that, I mean, what's, what, what is their, I'm confused, like what's their basis for saying that, again, it just keeps the the blood sugar levels at a very low, like the hemoglobin A1C at very low levels? Because they probably do, I assume. No, that on, on the contrary. Oh, they actually go up? They actually go up. One of the reasons yeah. when you go into ketosis, the brain, each uh, organ really uses different forms of energy. The heart can only use fat. The muscle can use both fat and uh, carbohydrate to make ATP. The right. brain can only use glucose. Mm. So this is what happens even on a purely starvation diet. This was worked on at Harvard Medical School 35 years ago. On a pure starvation diet of 35 days, no food whatsoever, what you find that the blood sugar levels never drop below about 60 milligrams per deciliter. That's low blood yeah. sugar, but not abnormal. It is low, yeah. Well, yeah. how can you basically maintain 60 milligrams of blood sugar with no food? The answer is the hormone cortisol. Uh So again, you have a a mechanism called neoglucogenesis that if you're not putting enough carbohydrates in the mouth, the body will respond by increasing cortisol to break down muscle. That's a stress hormone. And just as our listeners know, that's a stress hormone. That is not good ever to have increased in your body. That's your body is stressed. A little stress is okay. A lot of stress, not good. And then this is a lot of stress. And what it does, it breaks down your muscle mass to convert it into glucose for the brain. Interesting, right. What about also, let's talk about this couple of things. Dr. Stephen Gundry, who I was on a podcast with several months ago before COVID, <laughs> a lot of months ago. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, he's promoting this whole thing about avoiding lectins, you know, and even another diet that starts to seem ever more confusing. And he also eats a very restrictive diet. I know when I was talking to him, he eats like only two hours a day for six months a year. I mean, like, I don't know how he how he lives like that. It's just, I mean, that's like being on a desert island or something. But but what is it again with this lectins and causing inflammation? You know, my background's in immunology and I know there's a lectin pathway and everything, but a lot of these foods seem like they could be healthy vegetables and stuff like that too. And again, you're just restricting more foods. Oh, of course. And actually the uh, Gundry approach was just a variation of Peter Diadamo's approach many decades earlier. Eat right for your blood type. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And so the aspect to say, lectins, they can get in the body and cause all sorts of problems. That's true. That's why we have an immune system at the gut level to prevent lectins from getting into the blood and causing distress. Mm. Now, uh, it makes a very simple aspect, again, saying it's not what you put in the diet. It's saying, why balance it? Just take things out. 
magic bullet. Right. And the things that are rich in lectins are things that every nutritionist, every physician say, these are good things for the body. Right. Why, why are they somehow dangerous? Right. Because it makes good publicity. It's a, it's a simple answer. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm trying to dispel here. I mean, as I said, we will get to your diet because it has so many practical and, and I think sensible things for, for patients and may not make front page of the, the newspapers again, because you've been around a long time. You know that. I mean, that, that is the one, be- the one good thing. You've kind of outlasted a lot of other <laughs> diets. But Longevity is good. I know. It is. Well, you know why it's interesting? Like, like you say, I mean, your diet in, way, in some ways, too, is a little bit of a variation of the Mediterranean or I would call the Blue Zone diets, which, again, it seems sensible because these people who live to very long lives in these areas are basically eating these type of balanced uh, diets. But let me ask you one thing too about the longevity diets, these whole things with the intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating. Again, what's your, because you do uh, promote a little bit in the zone. The, the zone is always a day one, a calorie-restricted diet. A calorie restriction is the only proven technology that can basically increase aging, increase health span. Mm-hmm. So again, the more calories we eat, the faster we age. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is, on in terms of calorie-restricted diet, you can't be hungry all the time. Right. And you have to have adequate levels of protein, carbohydrate, and fat. So the zone diet started out, it really is a theory is now known as protein leveraging, that the amount of calories you consume in a meal is based, to a great extent, on the amount of protein eaten at that one meal. Right. Because once basically uh, hormones from the gut mainly PYY or GPL-1, reach the brain, it says, stop eating. If you're not eating enough protein, you will not release those hormones from the gut, and the body will basically keep on eating until it gets enough calories to set other sensors off to say, stop eating. So calorie restriction is the key. Intermittent fasting, it says, oh, it's so hard. Just eat whatever you want to for eight hours a day, or some people, two hours a day. Makes no sense. Our bodies are based upon homeostasis, hormonal homeostasis. Every time we eat, we're causing massive changes in hormonal levels that we can control or they'll control us. So when you hear about this intermittent fasting, it's really calorie restriction. Well, how about let's say the time restricted, because you know, it's interesting, you say in your books, I, I think you also say about also trying to keep the blood sugar level sort of even keel, which makes sense. The other ones, like the time-restricted, say, you know what? No, your body – I mean, I interviewed Mark Mathis from the NIH. Again, a lot of them believe in this whole aging thing that by, let's say, for example, skipping breakfast. You know, we were all kind of brought up breakfast is the – you know, you need to start the day. But actually by skipping it and going longer, fasting, and just like start – then, you know, let's say typically if you ate at 7, 8 o'clock the night before and then you don't eat again until – one or two o'clock, like that, that fourteen-hour period actually helps the cells autophagy, you know, kind of cleanse themselves. Essentially, you, you, are you disagree with that or? Yes, I mean I, he's okay. he's correct. If you basically decrease calories, you'll mm-hmm. activate the gene transcription factor AMPK that does all those things. Okay. So we have a couple of things. We have data. It's one thing to go from mice, but let's go to humans. We know from long-term studies, one-year studies. In terms of calorie restriction, continuous calorie restriction, that's really the zone diet, versus intermittent fasting, so the calories coming in are exactly the same. There are no differences after one year in weight loss or any other metabolic profiles. So a calorie is a calorie when it comes to calorie restriction. 
Second thing was time restricted. Well, the one way to increase inflammation in the body is eat too many calories at any one meal. Oh, that's that's well, a really good point. That's a, and what would that be? What what would you say that is? Let's say we all like to sort of get a ballpark figure. Well, again, let's just talk total calories. Like, uh, uh, you know, let's say the average man, if we're going to just call the average man, he should be eating about 1,800 calories a day. I mean- I'd uh, say closer to 1,500. That's all you 1,500. need. 1,500. Okay. It doesn't matter how he divides it up. Out of that 1,500, don't eat 1,000 at dinner or whatever. Exactly. You're spreading it throughout the day like <laughs> a drug. And you're trying to keep the ratio of protein ratio. to carbohydrate as balanced as possible in every drug. My initial human studies were not done in overweight people. They were done with Olympic athletes. Now, Olympic athletes need more calories right. than you or I, but the Olympic athletes I've worked with who have won 25 gold medals in the last five Olympics, none of them have ever consumed more than 2,500 calories per day, not 5,000. Wow. Because I remember I used to read about Michael Phelps. I, you know, I think he used to consume about 7,000 calories a day. I mean, he's a huge guy. Uh, it could be, at least the Olympic athletes I've worked with. No, I know. I'm just finding that interesting. I, again, too, it's, it is very interesting to me because I, I know some like read stories about marathon runners, and and I'm always surprised also how they don't eat a lot. Believe it, you know. That's you right. think for all of the the running and everything they're doing. I mean, I know they want they try to stay thin because they think all the extra pounds holds back their time and injuries and all that. But fascinating, really. So let's go back to the average man like you or I. Yeah, uh, 1,500 calories is about what you want. So three meals a day each are about 500 calories. And here's a good rule of thumb. Don't eat after the sun goes down. Yeah, well, that's, that, that, yeah. That. <laughs> if, if they got rid of television and we just went to sleep at then, it would be fine. I'm such a night eater. It's like the worst curse. <laughs> well, because now, now you're basically the whole aspect of intermittent fasting. Say, we're being in line with our circadian yes, rhythms. it's true. Our circadian rhythms are governed by light time cycle, not our watch. So eat why it's like. Absolutely. I know, absolutely. But also, but you know, too, also, I've read studies, this is about the Wurtzmans, I think, up at, they were up at MIT. Like, we do tend to crave carbs at night. It helps us, yeah, I don't know what it is to sleep, like they'll say, you know what I mean? So if you're going to have, and in other places I've heard, too, that, you know, if you're going to get your carbs, it's actually, I don't know if it's beneficial, but it's satisfying. I don't know. Oh, it's, it's satisfying. Carbs are always satisfying. But it's, they sure are. But scientifically, <laughs> it's not, not correct. It's saying, here, here's a good rule of thumb. You know your last meal was hormonally balanced if you're not hungry for the next five hours. Uh, so I'll tell you something personal for me, what I find, because again, also, it's interesting. Your body gets on such a rhythm. Like even when we've had the daylight savings, you know, like this hour change, I just know I'm not hungry till what was my original, when I typically eat. I typically eat a late morning breakfast, something you know, small like blueberries, walnuts, you know, something like that. Then at lunch, I have a salad. And what's interesting, I don't know, I guess during the day and I'm working, whatever, I'm, you know, I don't even think about food. I, I do, I feel satisfied. And probably, you know, again, the salad is, is balanced. But then in the evening, at the end of the day, boy, the appetite comes out. I don't know what it is, like sort of like you finish your day, you, know, you look forward to your dinner, and then the battle goes. Like, he's like, like he, cause you're not as busy, I guess. Well, no, I, I'll give you another alternative aspect. And that is the alternative aspect that each meal, the reason why you're hungry in the evening, because your two previous meals, that is the meal at breakfast and the meal at lunch, were hormonally unbalanced. Ah, interesting. Because now you go back to your breakfast. You say, I had some walnuts, okay, a little fat. I had some, some blueberries, yeah. But not enough protein. At lunch, you probably had a 
enough carbohydrate and good carbohydrates, but not well, mostly salad and, and beans. I, I try to do like vegetarian until my like my last meal, you know. And sometimes I do vegetarian. But you want to say uh, you, you need the protein. You need the protein. That goes back to the protein. Will the beans give you the protein? Will the beans do it? Or they don't do it enough. They don't do it enough because they carry a massive amount of carbohydrates at the same time. Interesting. Interesting. So you would say, okay, I see that. So if if I had had enough protein throughout the day. I wouldn't be as ravenously hungry exactly. in the evening. Exactly. That's a really good point. See, I, I learned that's why I do this podcast. Now I, you know, I not only share all this great information with my listeners, I learned something for myself. Sorry, sorry, gang. <laughs> but it's interesting because I again I fight it. It's like, you know, I'm like, what the heck am I doing? I'm eating healthy, I feel good during the day, and then at, in the evening I am ravenously hungry. Your hormones are catching up to you. Very interesting. Okay. We're going to get into specific on the zones, but I want to move to diet and inflammation, which is obviously the thing that you brought out. And obviously it really now it's also, it's something most of the public, I see with most of my patients, they are very aware of it now. They, they really have shifted from, oh, losing a few pounds or whatever, to saying, I don't want my body inflamed. You make some really interesting assertions in your books that, you know, again, you know, following the zone diet can help with autoimmune disease, colitis, arthritis, and again, with supplementation, which we'll get into. But I want to ask you, how do you describe gut inflammation and how do you test for it? And I, and I asked Alessio Pisano you know, at Harvard. Yes. I had him on and he's really done some amazing work showing the zonulin levels. But what do you look for? Because you do talk about it in the book about the gut being inflamed. and Well, when the gut's inflamed, what happens is basically the barrier between the world of microbes, which is a very alien world compared to our world, breaks down. And now those microbial fragments can begin to enter into the blood and mm -hmm. basically cause now of sentinels on every cell. They're called toll-like receptors to be lit up. And they basically generate inflammation. This is what happens when you have sepsis. The barriers break down. Right. You develop sepsis. You get a right. cytokine storm. And you usually right. die. Now, gut inflammation is not as bad as sepsis, but sepsis is shows exactly the same things which are happening. You want a strong gut barrier to keep microbial fragments on their side in their world. When they reach our world, bad things happen. Okay, so how do you how do you see achieving that? And what I just out of curiosity too, because I, I don't remember seeing the book, because I know you we'll get into how you talk about arachidonic acid and essential fatty acid ratios, but does does any of that help you know, let's say Again, how people are getting on your diet, the zone diets, and the resolution zone diet. How do they keep their gut healthy if maybe up till now it was not healthy? Well, here's a good rule of thumb. Your great-grandmother told you, eat 10 servings of fruits and vegetables per day. Okay. Why? Because they contain the fermentable fiber mm. the gut needs to generate the energy to maintain itself and to prevent the breakdown of the gut barrier. Okay. Okay. That's a, that's a good. Remember what grandma said. Um, okay, let's get into your three steps that you mentioned in your book in the resolution zone that reverse inflammation. You know, how you, I'd like you just to go over a little bit the specifics on the diet. You know, you talk about the omega 3s, polyphenols, and the fermentable fibers. So tell me, tell the listeners a little bit more in depth, if you wouldn't mind, so they could really understand the ratios, you know, and, and how they can practically do it, Dr. Sears. You know, I know it's, it's really interesting, actually, once too, this was, I can't believe I remember this. Years ago, a colleague of mine, a doctor, uh, <laughs> was following your diet and with his daughter, and he was actually getting the meals, I guess the zone meals. Do you still do that? You still? No, no. Uh, he used to get the zone meals. They were, they, I, they would get delivered, and he was like so happy, you yeah. know, but, but explain to the listeners a little bit 
again now about your the zone diet again, which you, as I said, been working on for gosh three decades at least. Let's get the the ins and outs a little bit, and as specific or anything that's practical would be welcome to the listeners. Let's start with the practical. That's always yes, the best one. Yeah. Here's a good rule: all you need to follow the zone diet are three things: one hand, one eye, and one watch. If you have those three things, you can follow this for a lifetime. Okay. Now, here's how you use those rules. At each meal, you put some low-fat protein on your plate. I don't care what the source is, whether it's vegetarian, animal protein, but just low-fat protein. But how much? No more than the size of the palm of your hand. A deck of cards kind of thing, like they say, yeah. And so that's about 25 grams on average, about 22 grams for a female 28 grams. Well, can I stop you one second? What would be the vegetarian choice? Because like a fish, obviously, people know chicken. What would be? You said beans are too carbohydrate heavy. So what would be the? So you have to you have to find now soybean substitutes. Okay. You see, impossible meat, things like this. Uh, uh-huh. So which are more? They're more heavily enriched now in uh, basically plant protein. Okay. Okay. So that now uh, now why do you need your? That's why the hand. Okay. Now why the eye? You have to divide your plate into three equal sections. So on one-third of the plate, you put that amount of protein you're going to eat at that meal mm-hmm. on the plate. The other two-thirds of the plate, you fill it until it's overflowing with non-starchy vegetables and maybe a little fruit. Okay. Great. What about grain? Like, let's say, what about uh, some grains? If they, people want quinoa or rice or something like that? Oh, no, I, I'll, re, I'll, I'll paraphrase um, Dirty Harry. Do you feel lucky? because you know again the greatest the greatest repository of nutrients are found in fruits and vegetables not grains and they're an incredibly rich source of glucose that enters the bloodstream very rapidly right so right they're high glycemic index which people have exactly so you're very much also concerned about glycemic index with your foods is that correct that's correct okay and then you add a dash of fat and then why do you need the watch if you balance your meal correctly for the next five hours, you won't be hungry. Those are great tips and great, great points. So let me ask you a question. So if I'm, again, I'm going to give my own practical things. You no, know, I also don't like to eat heavy during the day. You know, I'm busy and, you know, it's like I, I can't, you know, I'm not sitting down to a big meal at lunchtime. I, I might break between patients. If I have a salad, and I, and I like also, there was a book once called The Color Code, which basically emphasizes, and you basically mentioned this too, is like if you have a, a plate that's got all the different colors on it, you're getting all the different polyphenols and, and things from plant substances. But what would you recommend? Let's say if, I, you know, if I'm having tomatoes, lettuce, avocado, beans, maybe some little chicken or something too, you're shaking your head. Is that good, bad? I mean, well, it depends how you, you know, uh, how much little chicken is. If the chicken is the size of the palm of your yeah, hand, yeah. it's perfect. So that is good, right? Okay, so that's the kind of thing that I, I'm. No, I want to try that again. I kind of moved. You know, once while I was thinking like going again, slightly more vegetarian based, but I was, as I said, I was finding myself very hungry later and overeating. And so again, I, th- I think what you really point out, which is so important. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong too. That so basically in your diets, you, I think you like forty percent carbs, and again, thirty percent fat, thirty percent protein. Is that correct? That's correct. But again, it, let's put it in terms of practical. Yeah, let's aspect. do practical, right? Because people aren't sitting there measuring percentage. So I, I use the one, two, three method. Okay. For every gram of fat you have at a meal, have two grams of protein and three grams of carbohydrate. Okay. You get about the same one, percentage two, of calories. That's a good point. I think also it's something too that you brought up, which I, again, I maybe conveniently 
forgot about was like, let's say also, again, when I'll have like lunch, I'll, you know, a lot of times you go to these salad places, they'll give you a full avocado. That's a lot of fat. Exactly. Right? Instead of like you say, have slithers of it or a little, you know, a quarter of that. And again, you know, you're like, oh, that's not as satisfying, but you learn to get used to it because like, as we all know, if it's all on our plate, we tend to demolish the plate. It's gone. And that's where the discipline has to come in in portion size. I mean, I once went two years ago, a few years ago with my wife to Canyon Ranch. And I'll never forget, we went there because we figured, oh, it's a nice, it was up in the Berkshires and, and we knew we'd be eating healthy because we liked eating healthy food. But I'll never forget, like when the, the meals came around, the portion seemed so small, you know, and I'm not an enormous eater, but I'm like, this is really small. But we're just so used to going to the restaurants or wherever we go that everything is overflowing. Ah, but see, at the Canyon Ranch, they're giving you lots of grains. Grains are very uh, calorically dense. So to restrict calories, you have to have very small amounts. Now, mm. if they'd taken the grains off the plate and replaced it with non-starchy vegetables, you'd say, no mas, no mas, too much. It's, it's, hard, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to eat a lot of non-starchy vegetables. When you say non-starchy vegetables, too, you're talking, well, when you're taking starchy vegetables, you're talking about potatoes. Are you also talking about sweet potatoes, pretty much, also? Yes. I talk about the, the ABCs. Yes. Okay, let's hear that. Asparagus, artichokes, mm-hmm. broccoli, mm-hmm. cauliflower, mm-hmm. and spinach. They're ABCs. Mm-hmm. How about if people have a little bit of grain with their meals? Is that okay? <laughs> a little grain. A little grain is fine. Yes. <laughs> okay. It's like a little topping. All right. A dessert. A dessert. Okay, let's get to one of your really big things. And I, it was one of the books I love that you wrote, The Omega Zone, believe it or not. I've read a lot of your stuff. Let's talk about the omega fatty acids in the diet. Let's talk practical. And then, I want, then I'm going to go, we're going to go a little bit deeper into, because I know you're a big proponent of fish oil. And I, and I really want to hash that out a little bit. So tell again the listeners about the omega 3s, like, you know, how they can get it through the nuts, fish, olive oil, et cetera. Well, again, we, now we get a little complexity in the weeds, but it's not the omega-3s per se. It's the really the elongated Ratio. omega-3s. That is basically EPA and the DHA. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find them in nuts mm-hmm. because not at all. You won't and find them in the, nuts. The, the, though nuts contain omega-3 fatty acids, their transformation into EPA and DHA is incredibly slow and inefficient. So we have a lot of confusion mm-hmm. as to, yes, there's okay omega-3s and then the big boys. So you want to have enough of the big boys. How much? Wait, let's talk about this. So the, for the little boys, the, the nuts. So let's say when people eat walnuts and stuff too, that's not, that's like okay healthy. It's not super it's, healthy. It's okay healthy because it's, it's a great source of fermentable fiber. Okay. Polyphenols. But the amount of omega-3 fatty acids to have any effect on inflammation is basically zilch. Wow. Wow. Okay. Now your great grandmother uh, knew exactly how much you probably needed. That is three generations ago. No child could leave the house unless they had a tablespoon of cod liver, liver oil. oil. Yes, world's most disgusting food. Ugh, yes. Now, right. cod liver oil contains about two and a half grams of omega three fatty acids of EPA and DHA. Yeah. The average American today consumes one hundred and twenty five milligrams. Why is this a difference important? Because without adequate levels of these long-chain omega-3 fatty acids in the blood, you cannot make a newly discovered group of hormones called resolvins that resolve inflammation. What about societies that didn't live near the ocean? They didn't, couldn't fish? They didn't live, they didn't live as long? <laughs> well, it turns out the, the, the vast majority of societies who live near the ocean usually live near lakes. Okay, so they got fish somehow. Exactly. 
And, and you see this basically in the um, East African Rift Valley. Those tribes now still live uh, on the shoreline, consume massive amounts of EPA and DHA compared to their farming brethren, maybe only 20 miles away. Mm-hmm. So the key is fish. Well, no, the key is these omega-3 fatty well, acids. Fish have some problems. Oh, okay. of, they're called contamination. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can run, but you can't hide. Right. And the biggest contaminant is called polychlorinated biphenols. They're found in every fish in the world today because they are of persistent. They are basically indestructible. Mm-hmm. But we now know they're neurotoxins, carcinogens, right. and endocrine disruptors. Right. So eat, just eating fish, that plus basically contamination of mercury. Yeah. So we have some problems. You do, right. You know, yes. So the answer becomes now refined fish oil that you've taken out the pollutants that we have put into the environment. So let me ask you this too, because there, there are some other holistic doctors in the, around the country who I really respect. And I was at a meeting once about two, three years ago, and he stopped recommending fish oil for his patients. He just felt the way they even make the fish oil, it's impossible to prevent contamination. Wrong. And I say because all fish oil, pharmaceutical drugs, uh, the cheapest stuff you can find at uh, from, you know, a, store, a health yeah. food store, they all come from the same source anchovies and sardines caught off the coast of Peru and Chile. Now, what differentiates the good from the bad is the degree of refining. You can can remove the mercury. That's easy. Removing the PCBs, that's hard work. And I, I know for a while too, you, I I know for a while too, you made a supplement through your company or something, the, uh, that was selling the fish oils again, we, we, we still do. I, I, as I point out in my book, The, uh, the Megar Exxon, nearly 20 yeah. years ago, the major problem. And frankly, I think I'm, we're the only company who's actually made a commitment to reduce the levels of PCBs. Our levels that we measure on every batch are two orders of magnitude lower than prescription drugs. Mm-hmm. Three orders of magnitude lower than what you find in a health food store. Is it expensive? Yeah. Yeah. Is it worth it? Yeah. Let me ask you this, though, too, because I've, I've followed the literature over the years where, again, for a while, the omega-3 fatty acid supplementation, you know, there was Alexander Leaf, I think, at Harvard, the yes. promoter of that. It was actually Dean Ornish's mentor at Harvard. He was the one who, who basically initiated the whole thing that, you know, these omega-3 fatty acids are super important in preventing atherosclerosis. Then over, really, decades, I mean, more of the papers that came out found no benefit from them. And, and honestly, you're one of the few that says, you really don't even talk about the heart as much as you talk about being so important, you know, in autoimmune diseases. So do you still stick by that? Of course. Mm-hmm. See, it, basically, it, if you give a placebo dose, you get placebo effects. Mm-hmm. So what's the right dose of fish oil? It depends. It depends on where, where the inflammation is located and how much you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's say you're well and you look good in the swimsuit, then the two and a half grams a day is probably enough. Now, what if you're not well? You're obese. You have heart disease, diabetes. Probably need double that amount. About five grams. And what if you have now neurological problems or immune problems, even higher levels still? So how are you going to know? Well, actually, the blood will tell you. So you can titrate the blood to a certain level of, pro- of a rocketonic acid, the building block of making all of the pro-inflammatory hormones and EPA, the building block of making the pro-resolving hormones to get the right balance. You need them both, yeah. but they have to be in balance. 
Yeah. That, that, you know, what I found so interesting in your book, that Omega Zone book, that so few doctors look at stuff like that. And, you know, one of the things which I learned from you also, I've, I've passed this along to hundreds of patients, is that, you know, I have so many times patients come in and they have a high cholesterol, especially women, but their HDL is high, it's good, their triglycerides are low. And you point out in your book, when you have like a one to one or one, two to one ratio, that's quite good. So these people who normally some doctor might put them on a statin should not be on a statin. It's just going to probably lower their good HDL. Not only lower their HDL, but more importantly, increase their likelihood for developing diabetes. From what? The statin? Exactly. Why? Why does that happen? This is one of the problems of, let's say, of reductionist thinking. Ah, I see the problem. It's basically HMG coreductase. I'll inhibit it. Mm-hmm. Well, be careful what you wish for. That's why that the best way to lower the cholesterol turns out to be inhibiting that enzyme. The best way we can inhibit it, reduce the levels of insulin in the bloodstream. Mm-hmm. We don't, we're not statin deficient. We're making too much insulin because of insulin resistance. Right. Hmm. Okay. Let's go into about polyphenols. You know, you mentioned in the book also, again, I think one of the other really important things in reversing inflammation. So things like blueberries, olive oil, cocoa, well, red wine, you know, uh, even though you say some, some societies do better without any wine at all, uh, reservatrol, green tea, all important things in the diet. They are important things, but not equally important. Okay. Uh, there are about 8,000 known polyphenols, okay. uh, but most of the polyphenols are totally water insoluble. Now, if you had a drug that was totally water insoluble and you gave it orally, would it have any of efficaciousness? No. no, it wouldn't get in the bloodstream. Yeah, the same is true of polyphenols. Not all polyphenols have a sufficient water solubility to get into the blood to activate that last major phase, the activation of AMPK, the enzyme of life. Now, the polyphenols that have the highest levels of these more water soluble polyphenols are those from fruits and berries. Mm-hmm. So those are good, as long as you can get the kind that don't have pesticides and all that other. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And blueberries fall in that category. Yeah. And what about blackberries? are supposed to be good too. They're good yeah. also. Raspberries. But, but uh-huh. All these are good, except they carry massive amounts of glucose. Now, why is that important? Well, remember, we're trying to basically activate AMPK, right. but if we take in too much glucose, that inhibits AMPK. So now looking at uh, polyphenol extracts become a way of getting now the polyphenols without the extra glucose. So what's a polyphenol extract? Well, again, where you basically have, uh, here's a one polyphenol extract. It's called red wine. But we think, ah, red wine, resveratrol. There's virtually very small Mm -hmm. amounts of resveratrol. Mm -hmm. It's not red. Mm -hmm. It's not blue. It's white. It's water and soluble. It's only one of many 50 polyphenols in red Mm -hmm. wine. So the, the major polyphenol red wine that gives it the color come from that group of polyphenols that you find in fruits and berries. What about cocoa? I like oh. cocoa. <laughs> cocoa. Cocoa is great, uh, except for the one cadmium. thing. cadmium. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that, that's two things. Okay. So yeah, the higher the amount of cocoa polyphenols, the higher the amount of cadmium. This is not good. Second of all, only about 10% of the cocoa polyphenols can enter the blood, mm. which means 90% can't. Oh. Now, the 90% that can't are good for the gut, but they aren't very good for you. So again, you're looking for those, those 8,000 polyphenols that have the highest degree of water solubility. And what are, so what are those? Like, what are, they, what, just, what are the examples of that? 
Well, the best group is called delphinidines. Mm -hmm. Delphinidines are found in the in the highest concentrations in the blueberry family. Okay. The American blueberry, the Patagonian blueberry, mm -hmm. and the Russian blueberry. Okay. These have very high levels of these delphinidines. And what about green tea? Do you like? Do you think you get enough of the benefits? People always say for the prostate it's good, and I don't know other the arteries and stuff like that too. Do you buy into that? Oh, I buy into it with a, a grain of salt. Now, I drink about, oh, maybe eight to 10 cups of green tea per day. Wow. How come so much? Now, because it's good for you. Oh, so you do but, think it's good for you. Well, why do you think it's, oh, why it is it good for you? Because it contains polyphenols. Oh, that's what I said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but, but the fact is they are not nearly as effective as the other polyphenols uh -huh. found from fruits and vegetables. Okay. So they're good. Right. So the more polyphenols you get in the diet, the better off you are. All right. And what about, because I always say this to my patients too. I said, you know, the biblical diet was probably the best. You know, if it was around the biblical times, you should eat it. So olive oil, which they use for a lot of different things. You're, now, you're a big fan of cooking with it, just pouring it on, on your vegetables? I'm a big fan of cooking with refined olive oil because the cooking will destroy the polyphenols. Now, after you cooked it, now you add the extra virgin olive oil, which contains the polyphenols. Right. Wait, wait. So you cook with the refined olive oil? Yes. Because it just gets burnt off. doesn't matter. You don't need the extra virgin. Well, you don't, you don't get, you're going to break down products of the polyphenols, and you're not getting any excess omega-6 fatty acids in the process. Right. Well, that's another thing, too. I, I, you mentioned this in the book. I think it's so important. And again, people aren't going to be able to measure this, but you say we're supposed to have more omega-6 than omega-3, but we get way too much. The ratio is exactly. out of proportion. And what, what is high in omega-6 again? Like, is it, I forgot, is it soy or is it legumes? All vegetable oils are incredibly high. Mm -hmm. So that this was not a problem at the turn of the century at 1900. Mm -hmm. We had no vegetable oils. It's only when we basically developed gasoline that we could extract out the vegetable oils from seeds. They became now one of the primary sources of calories and the second most inexpensive source of calories just barely after table sugar so what's the best thing to cook with is it best let's say is it, you're better off with like people just always think you're better off cooking with olive oil versus butter now what's what's the best thing to cook well for? that's why i go back to say get the cheapest olive oil you can in the store and cook with that that's fine and that's good for the cooking it's low in omega-6 fatty acids and things won't stick whatever right you and know. then add the extra virgin expensive stuff to get the mm -hmm. polyphenols what about avocado oil? Do you think that's also good for cooking with? or It has a lot of carotenoids that can break down. So again, and expensive. Mm -hmm. So get the, the cheap refined olive oil for cooking and then add the good things after mm -hmm. the fact. What about also now we talked about, from, which I think is very important what you say, fermentable fiber. I always like to tell my patients when I'm having them have ground up flax seeds, which I tell them to put in their diet and stuff like that too. I said, I call it the good carpeting for the gut. Is that how you see it? Do you see it as something that essentially is good for the good bacteria that we want to promote in our intestinal tract? It's incredibly important because if you don't feed the fermentable fiber and flax seeds are very good in this, uh, if you don't feed the bacteria, they're not going to get angry. Yeah. And what they do, they start digesting the barrier between their world and our world. That's mm -hmm. called a dysfunctional gut. Right. So you have to have a lot of fiber in the diet to keep the microbes happy so right. you're happy. Probably the biggest thing I see in my practice is what, you know, what's called candida yeast overgrowth, which again, so many doctors did not recognize, but I see cases every week and I do now consults all over the country on this. And it's all because sadly, people were, were put on massive doses of antibiotics, whether it was for acne, the teenagers, the adults sometimes if they've had chronic sinus, not realizing that most of these infections are not even bacterial. So it's like an epidemic and it definitely has changed the microbiome. So my job is essentially 
trying to work with them on their diet to get that fermentable fire back to sort of restore that good balance. Because I think that that was one of the main things I wanted to get to today. I mean, as I said early in the introduction, I mean, you early on in your career, obviously focused on this idea of inflammation and definitely approached it as a biochemistry issue, which, you know, again, was the main thinking back then. But now the microbiome has become just as important. And I, I think it's really the, the marriage of these two concepts are how people are going to stay healthy. I, I agree. It's, it's really, yeah. again, systems biology. It's not any one magical drug or one magical mm -hmm. nutrient. Right, it's this, right. how the system works, how to make the system be as efficient as possible, that basically everything is basically maintained in a zone. Yeah. Tell us about, can you explain a little bit more about insulin resistance and what our, our, our listeners should know and if, if they have to ask their doctor? Because, you know, again, a lot of times doctors get very still basic blood studies and this isn't addressed. And I know you mentioned in your book about looking at hemoglobin A1C, glucose over 100. Does it matter also the serum insulin, whether it's high or low? I mean, what, what are the factors that you're... It's, it's incredibly important. The best marker of insulin resistance is called HOMA which is a, looking at the ratio of fasting glucose to fasting insulin. Ideally, your fasting insulin should be less than five microunits per um, ml. Uh -huh. The average in America is about 20. A fasting, a now, fasting insulin. Exactly. It's not a standard test. That's why I don't you know, see it very often. You know, I want to ask you this because you're really good with these ratio things. So you're saying uh, a really good test is say you, I send a patient and I say, to them, okay, you got to go for bloods. It's going to be first thing in the morning, whatever. You do it overnight fast. You look at their blood sugar. And again, labs, of course, give you ranges. They say 80 to 99. But if a person's 99, you know, whatever, and their insulin is 15, those are bad numbers, right? I mean, those are those bad. Yes. I'll put the emphasis on bad. Yeah. And would you say that also indicates are they pre diabetic or they have insulin resistance? I mean, how do you? They, they are both. Both. About 16% of the people who have severe insulin resistance are normal weight, mm -hmm. but the insulin resistance is severe. Now, why is this important? Insulin is not the boogeyman. It's incredibly important to, as a central control point to control our metabolism. Okay. But when you have inflammation, whether it be in the muscle cells or the liver cells or the adipose tissue, now insulin can't get its job done. That's what we call insulin resistance. Now, the poor pancreas keeps on pumping out more and more insulin to basically deliver the message you're supposed to do something. Now this excess insulin has, as of many hormones, anytime you have excessive hormones, you get collateral damage. Mm -hmm. That's the collateral damage that comes from excess insulin. Mm -hmm. Glycemic index, because now they're just because we're talking about this. And, and, you know, I mean, look, there are healthy foods. I mean, like today, for example, like I had a half a banana. I like bananas. But are they just, are they too high in the glycemic index? I mean, can people, do people have to be very careful with fruits because of that? I also find apples are really good to, for the fiber. They keep people full. You just said earlier about grandma's advice about the eight to 10 fruits and vegetables. Well, how do you do that so that you're not getting the, the glycemic index off the scale? Well, uh, first of all, I, I should paraphrase the 10 servings being eight servings of vegetables and two of fruit. Oh, you didn't say that before. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that, that's called details. All right. And, and so it, it's looking at the, the dose. It depends on the individual. If they have insulin resistance, they're pre-diabetic, they're of obese, they're even overweight. They say, you want to basically be very careful about putting in too much uh, carbohydrates. Now, if you're a world-class athlete, you have a little more leeway. 
not that much just more a little, leeway, just a little more. leeway for the world-class athletes. <laughs> exactly. You know, they, they are, they are no different than you and I yeah. after two hours after their training. So they, have, what did they do to like replenish? Let's say that, you know, I, I watched the tennis, I was a tennis player. I played in college and high school and, you know, and I watched the pros and they, they have a five hour match and, and then maybe two days later, they got to play another three hour match, but what do they do when they're finished? You know, I mean, they have to be depleted. I mean, obviously they have to be hydrated. What would be a perfect meal post? And even for the weekend warrior like myself, what would be the perfect, you know, I, I rode my bike today for 10 miles or something like that, but you know, what, what would be the perfect reward meal to replenish yourself and feel satisfied as far as, is that when you get a little more carbs? No. No. That, that's called a zone meal. Mm. Same thing. So, so no, so no treat for running ten miles or whatever. <laughs> the only treat is that because you're running ten miles, you're causing more muscle damage. You might need a little more protein than if you weren't running the ten miles. Mm-hmm. More protein means I need more carbohydrate and a little more fat to balance it. Now, okay. And so, the only difference between a world class athlete and the a diabetic patient following his own diet is that the world class athlete will need more protein, more carbohydrate and possibly more fat. Now, how do you know if you need more fat in your diet? Take your shirt off and look at yourself in the mirror. If you can see a six-pack, you probably need some more uh, carbohydrate because you need some more fat, so you have a a two-pack. World-class swimmers operate best at about 10% body fat. 6% body fat, you look great on Fitness Magazine, but say you're not going to be a very good performer. So the secret is to exercise hard, replenish within a two-hour window, After that okay, exercise that's period. That's a good point. Okay. Yeah, I don't have the six pack, so I, I assume I have to eat, uh, watch my shakes after my workouts. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I knew this was going to be a tough day today. <laughs> Just one other question, though, about protein. You know, David Sinclair, who's at Harvard, and you probably heard of him, he's, a, he's considered a big anti aging yep. expert. He says protein ages us. He says there's been too much hype about protein. Was he talking about, you know, all these people that are putting in protein into, again, their shakes and thinking, oh, I got to eat more protein? I mean, uh, you know, do you agree with that? Yes and no. I mean, you're looking for the right amount of protein for you. That depends on your amount of lean body mass. David is not a very, Mm -hmm. let's say, big person. He doesn't need very much protein. And if you're an MIT researcher, you're not all that active. So, uh, So, again, the amount of protein you need is dependent upon your muscle mass. And your level of activity. Well, I mean, it just, you know, it does seem also too, you know, there was that craze. I mean, I, I hear from so many people like, they're like, oh, I, got, I need more protein or, you know, you know, even people who are working out, they think protein makes their muscles big, you know, which, it, you know, really doesn't. It's and No, it, it, it's all about basically balance and moderation. Basically, there's two words people hate to hear, balance and moderation. Yeah, so no, it's uh, very again, important. it's not protein makes you age faster. It's excess calories that make you age faster. Yeah. Calorie restriction is you know, basically calorie restriction without malnutrition. That means without protein malnutrition. So you have to basically develop a dietary system that makes sure you get adequate protein, but spread throughout the day at equal levels, balanced at each meal with the right glycemic load, with the right balance of omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids, with a lot of fiber. They say, oh, my God, this is so hard. It's not that hard. But basically, to speak of uh, looking at any magic aspect of saying, it's living in a fool's paradise. I get it. George Sehan, the famous cardiologist who was part of the running craze, 
I read a lot of his books, which I find really interesting. I wish I could have interviewed him. He always says to people, you know, when they see as they get older, they, they say, oh, my face looks fuller, or they look healthy, but they really should look how their weight shouldn't be that much off from their high school weight. Do you agree I, with that? I agree that? 100%. Uh, you do? Those old Metropolitan Life Tables from 1985. Yeah, those are way off, right? No, they're actually are pretty they much on target. Are they really? Well, sometimes if you're too thin, they were like, that. Would, I guess, because I think for infectious diseases, they were worried yes. if you were on the so, thin So that, that's but, when you have malnutrition. But, but yeah, but again, if somebody was to say, you know, I mean, again, I mean, our bodies are so different. I mean, today there's another whole story. I mean, you know, they poison the food. So, so many young people are overweight. But I mean, again, I'll, I'll give you honest. Like when I was in high school, I remember this. I was a tennis player. I was 125 pounds. I was having a holding on my weight there. And I am definitely a lot heavier than that now. And then through most of my mid life, I was in my one, 150s. And now, you know, I'm struggling. It's like in the high 160s. 70s but so again can i get down to 125 i think i would you know i was like that when i was on the dean ornish diet people thought i was sickly i mean it was it was, it was scary you, you were you were yes you can get down by starvation but that's not the goal what happens as we age our weight might not change but our body composition changes dramatically right Basically, the muscle mass fat, and all that right, muscle yeah. mass so it's really not how much i weigh it's what is my percent body fat here's a good rule of thumb for a healthy male, there should be about 15% body fat. Now, how do you know what that is? Yeah. Stand stark naked in front of a mirror, and you have no love handles. Yeah. Now, for the average female who's healthy, should be about 22% body fat. Mm-hmm. How can you tell? Stand stark naked in front of a mirror, you have no cellulite. You say, I'd be, I'm gonna be very brave to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's why you do it in your own home with no one else looking. Well, yeah, Jack Lane used to say this too. He was, you know, so he's funny. He was really. He was really a genius in his own way. I read some of his books too. They were really terrific. I want to ask you about supplements before we, we get to finish here because this has been really great. But now I, I find that interesting too. You're not a big proponent on probiotics. Like you said, you could take them, but you put in your book, there are a, a two out of 10 in importance compared to fermentable fiber. Why? Why Why are probiotics? Is it we just when we don't really know what we're doing yet with them? I always tell patients, because people always ask me, what's the best probiotic that I should have? And I, and I tell them, honestly, I don't think, medical science knows yet. You know, we don't really have an answer. Well, you do have some benefits. That's why I give them at least the two. But the fact is that it's the prebiotics, the polyphenols and the fermentable fiber that do Mm -hmm. all the heavy lifting. Yeah. So again, probiotics do not colonize the gut. They pass through, they're used as target practice by our immune system. Uh, They won't hurt us because most probiotics are found in fermentable foods. Right. They're not to help us other than, say, gain the immune system fired up. So when a real pathogen comes in there, the immune system's ready for action. Mm. That's why when you're at peace, you go in the firing range and practice your shooting skills. Got it. Interesting. So if I was to spend a day with you, what's, what is your typical breakfast, lunch, and dinner? I'm just curious. Okay, well, a typical breakfast, um, now I'm six foot five, so I'm, I'm oh, wow. a little, little taller than most. Okay. Uh, so I'll have maybe a... Um, Eight egg white omelet. They say, well, that's what you say. Eight eggs, eight egg white omelet. Yes, that's 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 equivalent protein of a say a four ounce piece of chicken breast. Okay. Do you put cheese in it all or no? You you eat plain. You eat straight. Oh, I'll put I'll put some guacamole on top. Guacamole. And well, I'm not done yet. I know. And and I'll have some slow cooked oatmeal for um, breakfast. Now for lunch. And what do you have? Tea or coffee for? uh, What do you have for drinking? I'll have some green tea. Green tea. Okay. Now for lunch, yeah, you know, I might have a salad, 
with a lot of vegetables, a lot of non-starchy vegetables, and maybe a four ounces piece of low-fat chicken. And I'll add some extra virgin olive oil to it. Uh, by the way, I'm sorry, how much do you weigh, uh, if you don't mind me asking? You oh, know, I, I weigh about 205. This is what I weighed. Actually, it's about three pounds less than when I played at the National Volleyball Championships 50 years ago. Wow. You weigh less than you did back then? Yeah. Wow. Now, I, I, it doesn't say I have less body fat. Oh, I, yeah, okay. I, I weigh less okay. than I did then. But I also weigh about 20 pounds less than when I played college basketball. Wow. Wow. And dinner, what would dinner be? Some kind of fish well, and meat well, with veggies? Dinner might be about six ounces of fish. Salmon would be a good choice. Mm-hmm. Another massive amount of non-starchy vegetables with a little olive oil and maybe a, a little fruit for dessert. Do you find, did you have to become disciplined to do this? Like obviously to make this a way of life. I mean, because as you know, in America, we're, we're used to eating portion sizes way over what these typical four to six ounces of of meat. It, it looks minuscule to most people. They don't, you know what I'm saying? It looks like a hors d'oeuvre, not, not the main course. So it's, it's easy to become disciplined if you're based on knowledge. If you have true. no knowledge, then basically it's which way is the wind blowing. Yeah. Now, when I go to Europe, my diet there is very, very simple. For lunch, I'll have a, for anapasta or basically an appetizer, I'll have grilled vegetables. For my entree, I'll have grilled fish and more grilled vegetables. Mm-hmm. My dessert, I'll have some fresh fruit. Mm-hmm. The same thing for dinner. Mm-hmm. So again, in Europe, following, quote, the true Mediterranean aspect, it's, like, it's easy. Mm. So you, you also stay away from a lot of the, the breads, right? I mean, that's yeah, just something. That, it's not that they don't taste great. They do. Yeah, I know it's but, hard. But, Everybody but, has their, look, we all, I, I tell my patients also too, look, we all have our moments. So, so how do you feel, uh, just again, with this whole zone idea that let's say somebody says to you, look, I'm going to be good six days a week. I want my cheat day. How, how do you feel about that's that? That's fine. You think that's okay? Uh, uh, well, it's okay. Saying, but it's like taking six steps forward and one step, and back. One step back. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're plus five for the, for the week. Yeah. Okay. That's better than yeah. minus two. But right. Saying, you make yeah. choices. I always tell patients the only problem is though, that sometimes that six forward and one step backwards starts to become four steps forward, two steps I, backward, it, right? It, it becomes it, it becomes a, a reverse slope. dance. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's tricky. So well, Dr. Says, this has been amazing. I don't know if you remember, we spoke a few years ago. I had the pleasure to talk to you just briefly, and this was such a great in-depth thing. I, I think all of your zone books are so interesting. As I said, I love the Omega Zone. I think this whole new book, The Resolution Zone, is also terrific. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we kind of conclude? So something that well, you think I, th- we- I think we're really at the cusp of medicine in the 21st century. We've run out of steam of looking for magic pills. So what's our future? Well, we have to now look into the body. And we have the tools, the diet, if we're willing to basically have the discipline to basically affect everything that's important to us, our neurological problems, our immune system, our aging. Right now, we're faced with our biggest epidemic ever of COVID-19. So do we have a drug for COVID-19? No, because the immune system is too complex. But ultimately, the immune system is orchestrated by the resolution response inside your body, inside your genes. And to unlock that, to make sure it's not blocked, we have the ultimate drug known to mankind, food. This is not a new concept. It goes back to Hippocrates, let food be your medicine, let medicine be your food. And even updated by Linus Pauling, when he announced the basic formats of orthomolecular medicine, he said, the right dose at the right time. So again, we're seeing this thing, 
what we see accumulated knowledge, we're just giving it a little more nuance and now saying the blood will allow you to personalize your diet. You can be a vegan, you can be a paleo advocate, you can be a lacto-vegetarian, you can be an omnivore. doesn't matter what your dietary philosophy, you can follow the zone program within the confines of your philosophy to retake control of your body and the blood will tell you how well you're doing. Yeah, I thought that was a great point. That's what, again, I always enjoyed with your books. So Dr. Barry Sears, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, this was illuminating to me and I'm sure to so many of the listeners. And I, again, I hope they get to read your book, The Resolution Zone, and any of your other works. I think it's really, really important. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's a lot of fun. My pleasure. Okay, Bye-bye. take care. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.